For the longest time, I had a tie I couldn't throw away. And it wasn't that the tie was particularly nice, it wasn't. Nor was it that the tie stayed in style for that long, it didn't. I kept the tie because of what it pointed to. I think it was our second Christmas together as a married couple, maybe the third. We were both teaching at a small Christian school in central Indiana, making next to nothing, trying to pay off thousands in student loans. We had a car payment. There was rent. Money was very tight. And I don't remember how, but one of my students, Chuck, heard about our situation, and he had pity and compassion on us, and he wanted to be sure we had gifts to open that Christmas. So we got home on Christmas Eve that year, and there were two packages on the step to our apartment, and they looked like they had been wrapped by a teenage boy. I don't remember what he left for Becky, but for me, it was that tie. So for years to come, that tie pointed me back to Chuck's generosity and compassion. That unimpressive tie was a sign pointing to a very impressive act. Chuck took pity on us, and I just couldn't throw that away. It was worth a whole lot, even if it was worthless. We're going to spend some time this morning considering the technicalities and details of baptism, like taking that tie apart to see how it was made. But more than that, more than the way the water is applied, more than the verbal formula used, more than the age or consent of the one being baptized, what really matters is looking beyond the details and seeing what it points to. If I could tell you about the tie's fabric and its stitching and its geometric pattern, but I couldn't tell you about the kindness behind the tie, I would have missed the point. So we're going to talk about baptism, the water, the words, the way. But right now, set your mind and heart on what the sign points towards. Because what the gift points towards is more important than the actual gift itself. Lord, open to us this day the meaning and message of baptism. Let us see this sign, but more importantly, let us see what this sign points to. And in seeing, let us fear and love you. Amen. Ephesians 4 says there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The irony of that statement is painful. One body, one baptism. There is perhaps no other aspect of our faith which is seemingly so simple yet so divisive. One baptism. Hmm. Every aspect of baptism divides Christians and churches. One church baptizes only confessing adults, but another baptizes its infants. Some churches sprinkle, others pour, others dip, some immerse. Even among churches which immerse, some do so backwards and others do so forwards. And those who do so forwards do so three times in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. 
which brings up yet another point of division among churches. Many churches, most churches, use that Trinitarian formula found in the Great Commission, but other churches baptize only in the name of Jesus, which is the example found exclusively in the book of Acts. All of that says nothing about the many questions around the question of who can perform a baptism. One baptism. Ouch. And those are just some of the administrative issues. How about the deeper spiritual issues? One church teaches that baptism saves, washing away original sin. On the other extreme are churches which speak of baptism as if it does practically nothing. So what does it do? And, what we're, and, and, when we're, and when we're done with all those questions we're left asking, we have to ask this. So what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Baptism is a complicated question. We could easily spend four to six Sundays talking about baptism. We have just this one. So here we go. First, and I cannot stress this enough, the reason churches have squabbled over baptism for centuries is that it's a big deal. Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians do not agree on much when it comes to baptism, except that it matters. That's why well-meaning people desiring to be godly and be biblical have for centuries disputed baptism. And we're going to bring all that arguing to an end here today. Oh, that it could be so. We must realize that those what those before us have realized. Baptism matters. It's a big deal. It is important. So even if we don't love arguing about it, we should still take a close look at it and try to be as biblical as possible. So where do we start? <clears throat> well, here we are talking about Christianity and baptism. So the baptism of the Christ pops into our minds, doesn't it? John's baptism of Jesus seems like a logical place to begin our study, but it isn't. In any discussion of baptism as it pertains to the New Testament church, John's baptism of Jesus is of almost no value. Let me repeat that shocking statement. In a discussion of baptism in the New Testament church, John's baptism is of almost no value. Why? Because despite where you find John the Baptist in your Bibles, he belongs to the Old Testament. I know, I know, John is in the Gospels, and those are part of your New Testament. But John ministered under, he lived under, he was saved under the Old Covenant. How do I know this? Because John was dead when Jesus raised up the cup at the Last Supper and said, this is the cup of the New Covenant. When Jesus initiated and inaugurated the New Covenant, John was no longer on this earth. John's ministry is an Old Testament ministry. Now, having established that he's not particularly relevant to New Testament baptism, I realize if I go on and leave it hanging there, you're going to spend your whole time wondering what John's baptism was all about. 
So let's briefly comment on it. <clears throat> so what was John's baptism? What did it mean? Very quickly, so we can move forward together, John's baptism was Jewish proselyte baptism. In Jesus' day, a Gentile's conversion to Judaism was a multi-step process, one, in which, one of steps of which was marked by baptism. That's what John was doing. He was converting people to... Uh, my apologies, I got my pages out of order here. He was converting people to Judaism. And that's why he outraged the leaders of his day. You see, he was a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. For centuries, the Jews had been waiting for the Messiah to come to Israel. John was saying, hey, the Messiah is here now, but you're not really Israel. You've got to repent, be baptized, and convert to true Judaism. John was calling a bunch of Jews to convert to Judaism. See now why they were so angry with him, why they wanted him beheaded? So John's baptism is not particularly helpful as we try to wrestle with baptism in the church. So where do we begin? Ironically, despite what I just said about John's baptism, I'm going to go further back into the Old Testament than John. I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis Chapter 15, Genesis 15, <clears throat> verse 17. Genesis 15, verse 17. As you're turning there, I will say this. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to begin a sermon series on the book of Genesis. And when we get back around to Genesis 15 some months from now, I need you to be surprised and act like you're hearing it for the first time. Because I'm not gifted enough to come up with another thing to say about this. So we're going to talk about it now, but then we're going to pretend it was new when we hear it again. Genesis 15, 17 and 18. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. <clears throat> these pieces references body parts. You see, earlier in the day, God had commanded Abram to sacrifice animals, to cut them up, and to leave their carcasses strewn around on the ground. It was a gruesome scene. If you were here for our Christmas Eve service this past year, you may have been traumatized by the severed pieces of Teddy Grahams strewn all over our sanctuary as we reenacted this scene. Anyway, God, in making a covenant with Abram, added to the covenant a sign. And what did the sign signify? By the way, we lose the word sign when we say signify and significant, but those really are built on the word sign. So what did the sign signify? Well, the smoking pot and the flaming torch are theophanies, visualizations of the invisible God. So simply put, God was saying to Abram, if this covenant fails, then let me be like these animals on the ground. Let me be killed if this covenant fails. This act signified, it signified God's commitment to Abram. It was a sign pointing to the serious nature of God's promise. <clears throat> and by the way, I'm going to pause here for just a moment. 
there is a distinction to be made between a sign and a symbol. We don't have time to develop this idea fully, but in short, a symbol has a culturally agreed upon meaning which it communicates. A salute symbolizes respect. A thumbs up symbolizes affirmation. Signs may use symbols, but they point to something. They direct you somewhere. They say, look at that, or go here. Thus, a restroom sign may use the symbol for male or female, but the sign adds a go here message, look there message. Signs point to something beyond themselves while symbols might not. The torch among the gruesome carnage was symbolic, but it was also significant. It pointed to God's promise. Now, flip forward two chapters to Genesis 17. This is part of our Old Testament reading, but I want you to look at it again. Genesis 17. If you don't want to look in the Bible, you can look in the bulletin of the Old Testament reading. Look at verses 10 and 11 in particular. Genesis 17, verses 10 and 11. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. <clears throat> when Abraham and his descendants were circumcised, it was to be a sign. They were to look beyond the thing itself and to the promise which it signified. Of course, that is why John the Baptist was in the wilderness calling people to repentance. You see, they had begun to trust in the sign. They were looking at their circumcision and trusting in it rather than looking at what the sign pointed to. Salvation is not in the sign. It's in what the sign points to. A starving man gets all excited when he sees a sign that says free lunch. But if he stops and obsesses over the sign and never moves to where it is pointing, he still starves to death. Circumcision did not save. It was a sign pointing to salvation. Abraham... As you circumcise your son Isaac, think of our covenant. And as you think of our covenant, remember how I signified my part in this covenant. You are cutting off a piece of flesh. My sign was that I would be cut into pieces if the covenant failed. God makes covenants and he adds signs to these covenants. A rainbow for Noah a throne for David. And when God called for himself a people, beginning with Abraham, he made a covenant with them and added a sign which pointed to that covenant. The covenant promises of God saved them, not the sign. But that did not make the sign invaluable. Again, the free lunch sign does not save the starving man, but it still has enormous value. Most of you have already arrived at the place I am headed. Baptism is a covenant sign. 
it is a sign of the new covenant. Christ initiates the new covenant when he raises the cup at the supper. He confirms his role in that covenant when he gives up his life. An act, by the way, which fulfilled that sign to Abraham. If the covenant, if the old covenant were to fail, then let God be killed. Jesus steps up and dies because the old covenant failed. God then affirms Jesus as a suitable covenant partner by raising him from the dead. After which Jesus says the following, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Having all authority includes having the authority to institute a new covenant sign for the new covenant. At Christ's direction, baptism becomes the sign of the new covenant. I've tried to stress that the importance of a sign is what it signifies. And so we must discuss what baptism signifies, what it points us to. And we will. But first, let me stop for a moment and talk about some of the details of the sign itself. Let me discuss the wood, the metal, the paint, if you will allow that metaphor, which make up the sign. So a few of the details, technicalities of baptism. First of all, and most obviously, baptism has always been a water sign. Baptism has always been a water sign. Water is to be used. How much water and in what way? Well, the argument has been put forth that the Greek word baptizo, you can hear our word baptism in there, had to mean immersion. Maybe you've heard this argument. that The Greek word baptizo must mean immersion, going fully under the water. Now, there is evidence that that was true in classical Greek. But that argument misses the reality that language evolves and changes. Classical Greeks some 400 years before the New Testament used baptizo to mean immersion. But about 200 years before the New Testament, the Old Testament is translated into Greek. It's something we call the Septuagint. It's an ancient Greek version of the Old Testament. By the way, it's the version that the apostles used. Most of the New Testament quotes in the, sorry, most of the New Testament quotes of the Old Testament are of the Septuagint. So let me quickly read three passages from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 14, 27. You don't need to turn there, just listen. 1 Samuel 14, 27. Jonathan put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb. Now that word dip is a past tense form of that word baptizo. Are we to believe that Jonathan immersed his staff in the honeycomb? Daniel 4.33. Nebuchadnezzar was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew. That word wet is the same word, baptizo. Are we to picture enough dew that it filled a pool and Nebuchadnezzar went completely under it? My favorite is Mark 7.4. 
Mark 7.4 is not a translation into Greek, but rather was written in Greek initially. And it says this, and there are many other trans, tra- bleh, and there are many other traditions that the Pharisees observe, such as the washing, there's that word baptizo, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, it is possible that uh, uh, cups and pots and copper vessels might be fully immersed, but not dining couches. The word baptizo did, once upon a time, mean full immersion. But by the time of the New Testament, it evolved to simply mean making wet, dipping, putting into water. The New Testament never makes clear how much water is to be used or how it is to be applied to the person. Even statements about people coming up out of the water are inconclusive. There is first century Christian art, first century Christian art, the time of the New Testament, in which the artwork shows people being baptized. And what does it show? They're standing in a lake or a river, waist deep in the water, and someone is scooping the water and pouring it over their head. So when the New Testament says that so-and-so came up out of the water, that does not mean they were immersed. They simply went down to the river to be baptized. Baptism is a water sign, but since the Bible is silent on how that water is applied or how much is used, let's be gracious and apply the judgment of charity to our brothers and sisters on this matter. Let each apply water as they see fit without condemnation from one another. Now, without making the case for these next few, I'm just going to rattle off a few more technicalities very quickly. In our church's understanding of Scripture, the the constitution that binds our elders here at this church, baptism is to be applied by a duly ordained minister in a worship service with a Trinitarian formula. And when so done, it is not to be reapplied. I'm happy to follow up privately with anyone who wants to know more about one of those aspects. But for now, that's all I'm going to say on those. So by a minister, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with water, the amount and mode of which are not specified. That leaves one really big administrative detail hanging out there, doesn't it? To whom should the sign be administered? Who should be baptized? Well, let's first get the easy part out of the way. It's sometimes said that Presbyterians and Lutherans and and, and Methodists and some of the others practice paedo-baptism, that is, the baptism of infants, while Baptist and the Brethren, they, they practice credo-baptism. They baptize those who have a creed, a profession of faith, of what they believe. Let me put this to rest right here, right now. We practice credo-baptism. We baptize those who make a profession of faith. If someone comes to know the Lord in adulthood, as many of you have a testimony of doing, 
then we baptize adults. As a Presbyterian minister, I have had the great blessing of baptizing adults. We practice believers' baptism. It's just that we don't practice exclusively believers' baptism. We also baptize our infants. So why? Why would we baptize the children who have at least one believing parent? Well, let me first comment on the position of those who oppose this practice. They are correct when they say that the Bible never explicitly says to baptize infants. We have to admit that. And they are correct when they point out that there is no explicit example in the Bible of infants being baptized. However, the Bible never explicitly forbids the baptism of infants, nor does it explicitly direct the baptism only of confessors. You see the problem? Both sides are working from implicit uh, uh, inferences. Neither side has explicit commands. We must practice a degree of charity and grace with one another on this issue. Praise God, even during my lifetime, I have seen a movement toward grace in this arena among our Baptist brothers and sisters. Unlike 40, 50 years ago, today many Baptist churches will admit for membership one who was baptized as an infant without requiring them to be rebaptized. Praise God for that. But back to our question. On what ground do we infer that infant baptism is appropriate? First, as to the point that the examples of baptism in the New Testament are all of adults, I will add this. So far as we know, they are also baptisms of first-generation Christians. In other words, they're converts. They weren't raised in Christian families, and the infant baptism was omitted from them. They're new believers who came out of their pagan background. That's why they're baptized as adults. Not because it's a failure to practice infant baptism, but because it's a record of adult conversions. Now, that weakens our opponent's argument, but it does nothing to strengthen so let me do that now. Our brothers and sisters who oppose infant baptism are, as we said, quick to point out that the Bible never explicitly directs the baptism of infants. But that undercuts their position rather than supporting it. Allow me to illustrate. <clears throat> Many of you are of an age where you will recall that in your youth, when you were taught to drive, you were taught to pump the gas pedal before you started the car. Remember that? When you were first taught to drive, you were taught to pump the gas pedal before you started the car. Nobody does that today. A few years later, when you bought your own first car, uh, during the years while the industry was transitioning from carburation to fuel injection, the salesman had to explicitly tell you this is a fuel-injected car. Don't pump the gas pedal. Just start it. Why was there a need for that explicit instruction? Because without it, he can say, hey, this is fuel-injected, but you say, okay. And you continue to practice what you've 
always practiced pumping the gas pedal to start the car. In the absence of explicit instruction to the contrary, you're going to continue the practice you've always practiced. Now, what was the predominant flavor of the early church? Was it not overwhelmingly Jewish? At least for the first 30 to 40 years, it was predominantly Jewish. Now, when you tell Jews, hey, the sign of the new covenant in Christ is no longer circumcision, Jesus substituted baptism. What are they going to do? In the absence of explicit instruction to the contrary, they're going to keep pumping the gas pedal. They're going to use and apply the new sign in the manner that they used and applied the old sign, unless you tell them to do otherwise. The absence of explicit instruction does not support the Baptist position. To whom was the Old Covenant sign applied? What did we see in our Old Testament reading? And God, continuing in Genesis 17, you may still be open there. And God said to Abraham, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. The New Testament lacks explicit instructions about who to baptize because those instructions were unnecessary. They already knew to whom the sign should be applied. What's more, the new covenant is more inclusive than the old. The whole book of Hebrews is making the argument that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. The new covenant is more inclusive than the old covenant. Thus, the new covenant sign is applied to women when the Old Covenant sign was not. Now, when you see that movement toward a greater in inclusivity, Gentiles flooding into the covenant, women receiving the sign of the covenant, in the absence of explicit instruction to do otherwise, would you for a moment imagine that those once included in the sign of the covenant should now be excluded? The whole movement is toward more coming into the covenant, not less. Finally, on this subject of who should be baptized, by the middle of the second century, the middle of the second century, there is clear evidence that infant baptism was the standard practice of the entire church. Why is that significant? significant? Here's why. There is not one single word of condemnation anywhere from the early church fathers. Think about that for a moment. So we're to believe that in the book of Acts, only adult believers were baptized. But within a period of just two generations, the whole church had perverted baptism, and not one person ever wrote against it. Not one person stepped up and said, hey, this is wrong. I understand that's an argument from silence, but it is a powerful argument. As we saw in our New Testament reading, the promise of the new covenant, like that of the old, is for you and your children. 
Now, I said we had to care more about what the sign pointed to than to the sign itself, but I've spent some time talking about the sign. Its element, water. Its formula, Trinitarian. Its administration, by a minister of the gospel. Its application to believers and to their children. But in doing this, we are brought back to what the sign signifies, what it signifies, the washing of the helpless, the cleansing of those who cannot clean themselves. Baptism of a helpless infant points to the grace of God. Why are most of us believers, why are we members of God's covenant community, the church? Most of us are part of the covenant community because we were born into the covenant community. Like Isaac, by God's grace, apart from our acting, apart from our wills, he ordained that we should be born into households which reared us in the gospel from our first moments. I am a Christian because my parents led me to Christ because God ordained that I'd be born into that covenant family. Praise God for those of you who come to faith as adults. What great grace for God to do that. But the sign is still the same for you. You were lost in sin, dead in your transgressions, helpless to save yourself, and God intervened and called you to faith. So like Abraham, you received the covenant sign when you exhibited faith. But the sign applied to the infant still speaks to you. It still points in the right direction. It still says it is God who saves. It is God who washes. It is God who makes clean. How upended, how topsy-turvy, if the sign must rest upon something we've done. To say that baptism must only be applied to those who profess faith is to suggest that what it points to is something we do. Now, I was baptized as a teenager, not as an infant, having grown up in a Baptist church, but praise God, each time we baptize one of our infants here, it points me, and it should point you, to the work of God to save those who are helpless and to make them his. This is also a great warning to those baptized who have walked away from the faith. God put you in his covenant community and marked you with his covenant sign, baptism. But instead of humbly acknowledging your need for Christ and his washing, you have turned away. There are gradations of punishment in hell, just as there are gradations of glory in heaven. All unbelievers will feel God's righteous wrath. But those who rejected the gospel after, hurting, after, after having heard it will be punished more severely than those who never heard. To any baptized person hearing this who is not walking with the Lord, I plead with you, come back to the covenant 
community into which you were baptized. Come back to the God who placed his sign and seal on you. Come back to Jesus and his church. And all of us who have friends, loved ones who are in that category, warn your baptized loved ones of the sign to which they have turned their backs. But to the one walking by faith, perhaps beset by doubts, perhaps troubled by sin, perhaps despairing and downtrodden, let our confession of faith point you to all that God is doing and has promised to do in you. Hear this from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, in other words, it doesn't merely make you a church member, but also to be unto him a sign and a seal. Baptism as a seal, that's a whole other sermon all on its own there. and I'm not even getting into it today. It is to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, comma, of his engrafting into Christ, comma, of regeneration, comma, of remission of sins, comma, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. Each of those items set apart by the commas are worthy of a sermon unto themselves, but very quickly, let me just hit them briefly. Engrafting into Christ. Dead branches from a dead tree have been grafted into the living vine. I am the vine and you are the branches, Jesus said. By our engrafting into Christ, spiritual life is fed in us and made possible. And our baptism points to that of regeneration. To generate means to make. To regenerate means to make again. God made us and we destroyed ourselves by sin. But he comes and remakes us. Baptism is a sign of our regeneration. Of remission of sins. This water ritual, among other things, certainly symbolizes washing. And so our sins are washed away. Baptism signifies the good news that your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. Baptism points us not only to the death of the old man in Christ, it points us to the life that the new us has in Christ, of our walking in newness of life. Dear brothers and sisters, each time we celebrate baptism as a part of our worship, let it point you to the God who saves the helpless, those who could do nothing for themselves. Let it point you to his promise of cleansing, of new life, of regeneration, of engrafting into Christ.
You know, I never read the sermon text as it's printed in the bulletin. Hear it now. From Titus chapter 3. Listen to the good news which is signified in our baptism. Be submissive to rulers and authorities, obedient, ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That tie all those Christmases ago didn't seem like much to the uninitiated, but to me, it was a sign of someone's great charity toward me. To the outside world, our baptism may not seem like much, but let it be for you a sign that God has made you an heir, part of his covenant family, washed, renewed, regenerated, ingrafted, alive in Jesus Christ. Lord, make our baptism real to us today. And as we see the sign, move us beyond it to what it points to. Let us see in our baptism all that we have in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let us rejoice with each future baptism that we're blessed to have here at Shore Harvest. Let us rejoice each time we reflect on our own baptism, knowing that it is a sign which points to all you are doing in us. We lift this prayer up in Jesus' name. Amen.